Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker and investor and director of economic research at a company called Rare Real Estate. I'm joined here by none other than the king of the hill, my buddy Nick. That's just because my last name is Hill, isn't it? It might be. <laughs> I'll take it. Hey, everyone. How's it going? My name is Nick Hill. I'm the co-host of this awesome podcast we've got here. I'm a mortgage agent and, of course, a real estate investor. We have an awesome show for you today. But before we do that, I think we have a couple little housekeeping things and some cool announcements. Dan, why don't you let everyone know what's going on here? Yeah. So first things first, you can now support the show easily on Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com slash T-C-R-E-I. There's a link in the show notes. It's nine bucks a month and we're trying to make it, you know, deliver as much value as we can for that. We're not just asking you to support us for no reason. So what we've done is basically going to start screen recording our recordings while we are doing the podcast. So you can see all of the research that we're doing, all of the charts that we're looking at, all of that stuff. So if you're more of a visual learner, if you just want to, you know, you've listened to an episode and you said, you know what, I'd really like to see that, what they're talking about. We try our best to describe a lot of these charts, but sometimes it's hard. If you want that, that extra layer, it's available to you now. Next, we have three events in January, Calgary on January 20th, Toronto on the 21st, Edmonton on the 25th. These are all going to be monthly recurring events and if you want to go to meetup.com to check them all out, there's a link in the show notes and you can see all of the upcoming events there. And we will be rolling out more events in more cities, trying to do a coast to coast takeover here and have you know these monthly meetups for everybody in Canada. But now that we are done, the before stuff, Nick, what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to be talking about portfolios, binders, duotangs, and a bunch of other great back-to-school supplies. Please tell me that's not actually what you researched for this episode today. <laughs> uh, just portfolios, not the kind of stuff you use in office supplies or schools, the kind that you assemble and ideally make a lot of money off of. Right, right, right. That would make a lot more sense and be a lot more relevant for the show. You're right. So today, we're going to be looking at different types of portfolios buying a portfolio versus building a portfolio and what a portfolio should look like and more talking about financing and all that good stuff. But before we get into that, we've got a really cool property to look at. So today for our deal of the day from landlord.io, we are going to be headed over to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at 333 R Avenue S Saskatoon, Saskatchewan MLS number SK906432. The MLS description reads, calling all investors. This one is packed with possibilities. Built in 1978, this apartment boasts the revenue potential of a total of 17 units, five one-bedroom and 12 two-bedroom units that are ready for renovations. Is that a little red flag there, Dan? Ready for renovations? I mean, I think based on the photos, seeing that a handful of the windows are boarded up, I, I think renovations might be a bit of an understatement. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. We have that as a performer, don't worry. Some suites just need a coat of paint to sparkle. There we go. The building is close to parks, schools, St. Paul's Hospital, and other various walkable amenities to appeal to potential tenants. Open to offers. Here's a good one. Vendor financing is also a possibility. 
You love, love to, to see, see that. Yeah, I love to see that. Wow, we didn't even plan that. Now, Dan, I know you're a big fan of brutalism architecture. Now, this doesn't really fit into the brutalism vibe, but it does look a little brutal at the moment. It's got the boxes, it's got the symmetry, the patterns, whatever, but it's not all concrete. So it's not technically brutalistic, but I guess it does kind of resonate with that word brutal for sure. Yeah. It looks like a combination of brick siding and then of course the wood plywood that is currently acting as windows. So, you know, obviously there needs some work done, but one of the facts that I do really like seeing here, it's been sitting on the market for 133 days. So let's jump in to Lendler.io and take a look at some of these metrics here. So from our friends at Zumper.com, as of December 31st, 2022, the average one-bedroom apartment in Saskatoon rents for just over $1,000 at $1,033. Now, this is up 8% compared to the previous year. As of December 31st, 2022, the average rent for a two-bedroom apartment in Saskatoon rents for $1,245. That's a 14% increase from the previous year. So at five one-bedrooms, we'll say we'll call it an average of $5,165. 12 two-bedrooms at market rent from Zumper, we're looking at a total of $14,940. So if we had all of those units at market rent, we'd hopefully and likely be getting $20,105 in monthly rent. Let's jump into the numbers here. Now, this comes up at a 14.17 cap rate. Now, we like that, but there are some variables. So the purchase price I left at $1,105,000. I put the expected monthly rent at just over $20,000 there. Now, there is a box here for improvement costs. Sometimes we leave that box empty if it looks move-in ready. This, Dan, I think you can agree, is probably not move-in ready for the most part anyways. So I did put $300,000 in there as improvement costs, Twenty-five for closing. I have a 6.5% mortgage rate, 70% loan to value, but also that cash invested is on top of that. So that takes the cash needed all the way up to over 650,000. Couple grand in there for monthly operating costs. And I did lower the vacancy down to, or so the occupancy down to 85%. So Dan, take a look at this. Tell me what you think. I like the deal. I feel like I say that all the time because I just love deals. deals. So, and I was looking I was looking back at our last episode and it made me realize, you know, I, I kind of did a bit of an error in the analysis of the last what? asset. No. Yeah, sorry. Impossible. You know, for the last deal of the day, it was an occupied multiplex. So we can't really analyze those based on like the market research that you're doing using Zumper as an example. You kind of have to go with the potential rents or the existing rents rather than potential rents if there's a net operating income in place. So we should have used income from the rent rolls as our entry cap rate and then kind of put together a scenario on how we could escalate into those market rents either by paying some of the tenants out using cash for keys and modeling those into our assumptions as cash is out this property looks vacant. So you would be using those new market rents. It's just, okay, we have to also model. I'm going to probably estimate we're renovating one suite per month, bringing it to the market. You know, So you have leasing one unit in month one, two units in month two, and kind of escalating those costs on the cash out as well. Otherwise, as long as you model all those things in and you know understand that your first year return on seven, turning over 17 units to bring to market isn't going to be instantaneous, it looks like a pretty good deal. The real variable is, again, the timing and the cost of that renovation. If it's 300K for improvement costs, then you know the deal is okay. But it starts to look a lot different if that's double at $600,000. Not only does it cost more cash, but the opportunity costs also a lot higher because your vacancy is up 
for longer periods of time, right? Yeah, some great points there. It reminds me of that eightplex that we just looked at. The few picks we had seen made it look half decent, but then when we actually went and toured it, wow, bit of a different story. It needed a few hundred thousand dollars just to get it to where it could be rented, and that required a ton of cash to be injected into the deal, which kind of killed it when you started to run those numbers, the cash that you needed. Anyways, Great deal, cool building, brutal-ish type stuff. Let's get into today's episode. But before we do that, Dan, give us a little Latin lesson as you do. Sure, absolutely. Did you know <laughs> portfolio is based in the Latin? This one's actually not as exciting because it, it didn't make that much sense to me. I think <laughs> the Latin folium, meaning leaf or sheet, which so I'm assuming it's like you know a bunch of sheets of paper. It's kind of like the word foliage, like, you know, a bunch of trees growing in. You see the nice foliage. Portfolio usually represents a portable showcase of your talents. Now, I guess that kind of, you know, the portable showcase of your talents, that kind of, yeah, right? Like a portfolio is kind of showcasing your talents if your talents were assets, I guess. Anyways, thank you for that Latin lesson. You're a gentleman and a scholar, sir. Or from the medieval Latin, you are a scholaris. So thank you to our resident Scalaris. Now let's jump in. I think the first thing we should cover is what is a portfolio? So a portfolio is a broad term that can include any financial asset like real estate or gold, but is most often used to refer to a total of your assets that earn income. An investor's portfolio, also known as their holdings, can include any combination of stocks, bonds, cash, cash on cash equivalents, real estate, commodities, and more. Some people are organizations manage their own investment portfolios, but there are other options. Many choose to hire a financial advisor or other financial professionals to help manage their portfolios on their behalf. Now let's talk about a portfolio specific to real estate because that's what the show is about. We'll leave stocks and bonds and commodities to our podfathers at TCI or the Canadian Investor Podcast. So whether rental properties, rehabs, or REITs, real estate investment trusts to earn monetary returns, that's how we use real estate within our portfolio. Although not every real estate portfolio will look the same, the items considered part of your portfolio would generally depend on the combination of the factors such as your objective, your time horizon, and your risk tolerance, and probably also how much capital you have. Totally. When learning how to start a real estate investment portfolio, investors should first consider the expected number of months or years they intend to be investing to achieve their desired goal and the risk versus reward approach they aim to take to obtain it. Now, risk and reward are inherently intertwined and with real estate investment, so the risk tolerance will ultimately be decided by the investor's willingness to lose some or all of their original investment in the pursuit of their financial goals. Portfolios are broken up into a few different categories, and these categories relate to specific investment goals or strategies and to the lever of comfort with risk. So Dan, start us off with the first type of portfolio. So the first type of portfolio is a growth portfolio, also known as an aggressive portfolio. So you take a greater level of financial risk in exchange for the chance of a greater return. This in real estate is very much people investing for capital appreciation rather than the get rich slow scheme of yield. Many growth investors seek out newer companies or riskier assets that need capital and have a lot of room to grow rather than older and more stable companies with proven track records and less room to grow, but more predictability. 
investors in growth portfolios are willing to handle short-term fluctuations in the underlying value of their holdings if it means there's more potential for long-term capital gain. So just think capital gain rather than yield here. This type of portfolio is ideal if you have a high risk tolerance or if you want to invest for the long term and can see that volatility out over the long period of time. And we're going to talk a little bit about volatility as well because it's really one of the major components of risk. This is for people with a higher risk tolerance. You may be trying to scale quickly. You probably are borrowing private money at a higher rate to fund deals. You're not buying blue chip properties and you're also not buying entry level properties either. You're likely in a competitive market and in a competitive asset class. Yeah. I mean, I love the growth portfolio idea. I think a lot of people had that idea and applied it to real estate over the last two years. And, you know, more risk, more reward. And there's certain people that, that cashed out and there's certain people that got caught. Anything to say, Dan, or should we move on to the next no, portfolio? Good. Okay, sweet. The next one on the list here is an income portfolio. Now, an income portfolio is built with a focus on creating reoccurring passive income. Sound familiar? Passive income? Rather than seeking out investments that might result in the greatest long-term capital gain, investors look for investments that pay steady dividends with low risk to the underlying asset that earn those dividends. This type of portfolio is ideal if you are risk adverse or if you plan to invest with a short to medium term horizon. Now, Dan, this is a lot like some of the assets and the portfolios that we're building right now, right? A major focus on cash flow. And we talk about that all the time. The importance of when you start out, cash flow should be your number one thing that you focus on. Now, the difference between what we're doing and the standard income portfolio is we plan to hold for a longer period of time, but these assets usually have less of a barrier to entry and are, you know, quote unquote, more affordable, more economical. You are less likely to experience major appreciation but you will ideally be getting a good to great returns throughout your holding period. Absolutely. Like I think real estate probably fits best within that category of income as an income portfolio rather than, you know, I mean, in Canada, we have been a little bit obsessive about capital appreciation and kind of more in that growth mentality, high risk mentality, you know, especially seeing 2017's mania last year, 2022's mania. I think Canadians have largely, it seems like the market's pricing in an acceptance that that type of investing is probably gone for now. And so we're returning to thinking about real estate as a cash flowing asset, thinking about real estate as an income portfolio rather than a, you know, than a, than a growth portfolio if you use those two comparisons side by side. Next on the list, we have a value portfolio. This is made up of stocks. When you hear value investing, and this is principles from this come into the way that we think about investing in real estate. Can we get it at a good deal? Am I buying, maybe as an example, below replacement cost would be one of the things that we really target to do. You want to buy stocks or companies that are priced low compared to the company's overall financial picture. Value investors buy those underpriced and then they hold them as the price rises or as that intrinsic value is materializing. And Samoa and I actually just did an episode on REITs and whether or not they're undervalued right now. It should be released on the Canadian Investor Podcast over the next couple of weeks. Rather than focusing on income generating stocks, investors with a value portfolio buy stocks and hold them for an extended period with the goal of long-term growth. This type of portfolio is ideal if you have moderate risk tolerance and a long time horizon. And when I think about real estate, I really do think into that long time horizon, right? This fits into the model of what we're currently buying. Look for undervalued deals, locations that haven't been discovered yet, or you know, locations where you're not competing with a lot of investors. You're not saturated by investors. You're not competing with institutional capital. 
you need to be the one adding the value. This also means buying properties and adding value to them, adding units or improving a return of a property, changing tenancies, bringing units up to rent, making improvements, either structural or cosmetic. Right, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think a combination of the value and income portfolio is really where most real estate investors should be living. But on that note, we have a couple other portfolios to discuss. So let's keep moving on. The next one is a defensive portfolio. Now, a defensive stock is one with a relatively low volatility in industry or sector that tends to remain mostly stable in spite of changes in the broader markets. In other words, a defensive stock represents those companies whose products are always in demand, no matter what the state of the economy. A defensive portfolio is made up of low volatility stocks with the intent to limit losses in a market downturn. Defensive portfolios often have lower risk and lower potential rewards. These portfolios work well for long-term horizons because they lead to smaller but sustained growth. Now, this is a great strategy, but it usually, in the world of real estate, is a bit more capital intensive. This would be the equivalent to buying Apple as a stock, right? A blue chip, which is great, but the Apple stock is equivalent to a blue chip style house, likely located in a top tier market, likely a top tier house, probably not going to be able to add a ton of value. It's more expensive, but it holds its value no matter what the economy is doing. It's also likely to produce less cash flow, but you'll experience more appreciation in the long term. Yeah. So I think as a core principle, like this type of investing, and, and it's something that you're probably hearing a lot about right now, given, you know, we just saw what one of the biggest losing years in the indexes in, it was one of the top five, I think minus 28% or something last year, you know, people want to start getting defensive. And the question is, okay, well, can we, we're hearing talk about a recession. There seems to be reconfiguring of the definition of recession to try and avoid the panic of it, even though it's probably fully priced in because the information you know, we're in this information age where everybody knows everything right now. But can we recession proof a real estate portfolio? Put aside stocks because I'm not remotely qualified to talk about, you know, building a defensive portfolio on that side. But can we recession proof real estate portfolios? And this could go anywhere from like who your tenants are. We're going to talk about a lot of these things in detail, but who your tenants are. Are they on, are they on welfare programs or are they in, you know, tech employees as an example? Because there's different varying degrees of you know, of risk associated with, with those two things. Finally, a balanced portfolio is one of the most common options investors use. The, the purpose of this type of portfolio is to reduce volatility. And we're going to talk specifically about volatility in the context of modern portfolio theory, because we have a lot of volatility in Canadian real estate and major markets. You know, Vancouver had a huge sell-off in 2016. Toronto had a huge t- sell-off in 2017. And now we're seeing prices coming back down just a couple of years later after they rallied up. It's you can't really dispute that Canadian real estate is actually a surprisingly volatile asset and it's very, very, very closely correlated to interest rates. This type of portfolio, a balanced portfolio, is ideal for someone who has a low to moderate risk tolerance and a mid to long range time horizon. And this would be like taking a very safe real estate position. Like actual properties would be a mix of different assets, maybe exposure to a couple of different things. Maybe you have a, you know, a small industrial unit. So with a great long-term tenant, and then you also have a couple of short-term rentals and a couple of long-term rentals in different markets. You would probably have soft assets as well, such as investments in REITs and, and stocks as well to kind of hedge so that you're not too exposed in one specific area. You don't have too many eggs in one basket. I think the word we're looking for here is diversification. Something so, like that. 
you don't need to stick to any one of these strategies. These are just the most common ones and we've taken them and applied them to a real estate portfolio. So a well-diversified portfolio can include a mix of growth, dividend value, and defensive assets. And now that we have an understanding of what a portfolio is and the different types, let's look at what constitutes a portfolio from a size or value perspective. It's generally agreed upon that a good stock portfolio is made up of 20 to 30 diversified stocks. Now, obviously, it's not the same for real estate. You don't have to have 20 or 30 diversified real estate assets to make up a portfolio. And actually, it was extremely difficult to find any sort of definition or even an outline of what an actual, you know, quote unquote, real estate portfolio should look like from a size or value or even a return metric. So let's just say what a portfolio is not instead of what it is. It's not one duplex. It's not one triplex. It's not even one tenplex. It has to be multiple properties, not just multiple units. But I'd personally say anything over five, I would call a portfolio. Maybe I'd go as low as three, but I feel like three properties isn't enough to actually call it a portfolio. I remember when I bought my third property, my third duplex, so six doors, I was with my lawyer who's a longtime real estate investor himself. And after the third property and the sixth story, he's like, congratulations, now you can call yourself a real estate investor. I like that, actually. I mean, I guess it, it really varies. It's based on, you know, I think it's open for interpretation. And I don't really necessarily think it matters. I think one of the, you know, the, the easy criteria is, and, and I say this a lot, it's like, what do the lenders say? What do the insurers say? Are they mm, going to give you a blanket policy for your whole, because like, at a certain point, like the reason that you want a lot of assets is to get economies of scale, right? Can I get a better insurance rate because I'm insuring three buildings at the same time? At the same time, no. Can I get it for five? Maybe, right? Can I get a better mortgage rate if I'm putting a blanket mortgage on five assets? Maybe on three, probably not. So, when you start to hit that scale, and it would vary on market to market basis, it would vary based on the type of product that you're looking at. But I think when you hit the scale where the people that you need to make your business viable, lenders, insurers, etc., start calling it a portfolio, start giving you preference because you have a portfolio. In that case, I would say you're probably there. A lot of the things that we were just discussing come from the idea of modern portfolio theory or MPT, which is basically like a mean variance analysis. It's a mathematical framework that was created by this guy, Harry Markowitz, in I think like the 50s. And basically what it does is, you know, it, it tries to create a science out of the, you know, now it's it's so embedded in what we think and talk about that it doesn't really even sound that profound. But, you know, in the 50s, this was obviously quite profound. It basically tries to create a science of the trade-off between risk or volatility and the expected return that you might see. So on the Wikipedia for MPT, it shows this kind of confusing chart that basically shows the expected return on the y-axis and the volatility of the asset on the x-axis. A lot of S's there. <laughs> say that five times fast. Yeah, I can't. I couldn't even say it once. <laughs> In a perfect world, that relationship would be a linear trade-off. So if you're looking at this chart on Wikipedia or on our Patreon, there's a straight line, which is where you see this kind of perfectly sloped, best possible capital allocation line, which is the risk-free rate. And Capital allocation is what the way you should start thinking of yourself if you want to build a portfolio. You are a capital allocator now. You're in the business of asset management. I use the GIC as the risk-free rate in analysis that we did for episode 49, which was the investor report. And I'm just pulling up a, that chart right now. But where we basically plot the potential property returns of each market using a price to income, which is admittedly a very imperfect kind of napkin math approach to valuing 
what you can do in a you know in a, in a market. But as a baseline, it does kind of show you what markets are going to outperform the risk-free rate and which markets are going to underperform the risk-free rate. Can you read me that list, Nick? It would be my pleasure. The first on the list is Calgary. Sorry, actually, let me interrupt here. This is the list of markets that outperform so that that are above that GIC risk-free rate. I think I used something around 5%, 4.5%, Okay, great. Again, first on the list is Calgary, then Edmonton, famous for their boom-bust kind of oil cycle exposure. Saskatoon and Regina, similarly dependent on industries like oil, potash, and, and other commodities that come out of the prairie provinces. Winnipeg, Gatineau, and Fredericton all make that list as well. St. John's, again, notably exposed to oil, but also located, also, sorry, is the only province that we're expected to see population decrease. And then finally, PEI. So from my perspective, this gives us a good look at areas that you might go for a more management intensive portfolio that will give you a better yield and a better maybe potential growth, but also more risk that that potential doesn't pan out. Now let's look at the cities that fall below that risk-free rate, Nick. Victoria, Vancouver, two of the strongest and tightest rental markets in the world. The world. The GTA, of course. Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, London, Kingston, Montreal, Laval, Quebec City, Moncton, and Halifax, both of which saw a lot of growth in population and house prices from Ontarians moving to the East Coast during COVID. Sorry about that, guys. Sorry, East Coasters. So these are markets that are more core, with a few exceptions. And while they saw speculation during the COVID era of suburbanization and Ontario exodus, they didn't get too far detached from their fundamentals, again, with a few exceptions which is what gives us a greater degree of safety in some of these markets. There will always be a buyer for this type of property. There will always be a lender to lend on these types of deals. And when you start seeing credit contraction, you stop seeing lenders wanting to lend in these random fringe markets. The idea of modern portfolio theory challenges you to weigh the risk and return of each asset individually. It's it's a lot easier to build a portfolio of stocks because you can just buy or sell them. They're very liquid. They're easy to transact. Real estate is a very different beast. And a lot of people dismiss the risk when thinking about scaling a portfolio. There are certain areas that see much better growth in price. This means that you could tap the equity and buy more property faster using the snowball method. Pull equity out, buy another property. But it also means that you would have more downside risk if the market turns. Similarly, there are areas that have better cash flow, meaning you could actually save those retained earnings and redeploy them into more assets, but you're not going to see that capital appreciation that you would see in some of the core markets. And you know, you can see that cap rates follow 10-year bond yields relatively loyally over history. From CBRE's research report, this is a Q3. You know, the national average cap rate, we did this in our episode one, we covered this, but we've also covered it in the cap rate reports. So in periods in the early 90s, the spreads was like went from 400 basis points. So 4% cap rates were 4% higher than the, than the Canada 10-year bond yield. And then they tightened all the way to 200 in the middle of the 90s, as an example, or in the 200s. But typically relatively loyally between kind of like 200 and 500, so 2 and 5% above the Canada 10-year bond yield. And so you can kind of almost reverse engineer price expectations based on that risk-free rate that I was mentioning. And you need to think about this stuff when you're thinking about either buying a portfolio or building a portfolio for someone else. As a builder of a portfolio, you could be the be buying the riskier assets at returns that are adjusted for those risks and reducing that risk through scale and value creation. 
So you may be buying a portfolio in a specific city, but some of the properties are in a rougher area. And so you want to get those at a better cap rate, as an example, than the ones in nicer, more stable areas that command a premium on price. Now, on the other side of things, as a buyer of a portfolio, you don't really get that luxury because you're often buying the entire portfolio at a set valuation. It could be based on a cap rate, for example. If you're buying the whole portfolio at a six cap, you don't necessarily know whether or not those certain outliers are paying their risk premium within the portfolio because they don't have specific values for each asset. This is why even when you're buying a portfolio, it's important to get the valuation or even appraisal done on each individual asset on the way in. So you have an understanding of how each asset performs within that portfolio. For sure. I think it's especially interesting in the context of building and buying. So let's look at building a portfolio and then we'll look at buying a portfolio. Now, building a portfolio is something that most of us probably strive to do. We look at a portfolio as the key to our goals and our freedoms. You know, if I only had more doors, I could be making money passively sitting on a beach somewhere. Is that actually even possible? I feel like we will (laughs) actually outgrow that. might be true, but there's a lot more to building a portfolio than just buying properties. Anyone can just go buy properties. It's about buying right. And that's a very arduous process from my perspective. It's also like, what is your plan, right? Yeah. And I think the first thing that people should be thinking is, what is your why? Why are you buying these properties? What's your plan? What's your exit strategy? Are you buying a portfolio to sell it at some point to another investor or to a REIT or to another institutional investor? So some things to consider when building your portfolio. And we'll just do a quick overview here and we'll dive into each one of these in detail. We've got portfolio architecture and location systems and teams, location, returns and accounting, rent rolls, corporate structure, physical assets, management, and of course, debt and capital. So let's start with the portfolio architecture, which is kind of con- a bit of a confusing terminology, but location as Sounds well. Sounds cool though. So it does. It's very sexy for sure. <laughs> what type of assets are in your portfolio? What's it composed of? Are they all high-end short-term rentals? Are they all small multifamily in the same area? The best way to design a portfolio is to have a mixture of both asset types, classes, and geography, but that obviously comes with its own individual problems, right? It's hard to manage a decentralized portfolio over a bunch of different places. So you got to think about these things. Ideally, you want to start with a base of cash flowing properties. That's the foundation. That's where you kind of build more retained earnings that you can redeploy. And some people prefer to do that by buying properties that appreciate in value and you know rather than using equity from those rather than retained earnings. The reason I don't like that is because in order to do that, you have to go to a higher leverage position. Every time you want to pull equity, you're adding leverage. And so you're stacking, stacking debt. And now in a down market, we learn the risks associated with that. You know, as you start to expand using the cash flow, you maybe buy a larger multifamily or a self storage or a different type of asset class, or maybe, you know, you're balling out a little bit. You want to buy a cottage for yourself that you can also use as a short term rental, but you still want to make sure that you're getting both cash flow and some appreciation. The next piece of that is location of all of the assets. The three most important words in real estate are location, location, and can you guess the third one, Nick? Location? Yeah, that's Latin, by the way. (laughs) Where are your properties? Is one in Moncton and the other in Toronto and the other in Winnipeg? Well, that doesn't make a ton of sense unless you're a jet setter who needs to use those units at all times and you're airbnb them. And even then, it's still kind of challenging. So you should be focused on a few areas and know them very well. Knowledge is power here, right? Within those areas, you can start diversifying your holdings. Love that. The next piece we're going to be talking about is systems and teams. Do you have them? 
because if not, you need to get them. Not only will it make it better for you now and for the rest of the time that you hold your assets, but you'll want a system to make sure that you're actually building a portfolio with purpose and intention. So create a business plan, write down investment goals, a financial plan and targets, and an investment strategy. Start to use tools and analytics and investment tools like Landlord.io, for example. Build a good team and make all of their roles and responsibilities very clear. For instance, if you have a handyman, you know what he's doing. If you have an acquisitions manager, you know what their role is. What do you do to get your first and when you want to buy it? Do you need a mortgage broker to get you a budget? What are your expectations of your realtor? Do you want your contractor to also be your inspector so he can walk the properties with you and quote potential assets before you buy them so you can plan? Do you want to spread out your closing dates? These are all things that you need to think about, and that includes systematizing as many processes as you can. So whether it's the methods of payment from your tenants or a digital version that allows your tenants to log complaints so you aren't getting those you know, proverbial phone calls that the washer dryers broke or the toilets leaking on a Saturday night, you want your team members to work within these systems and have those specific roles and tasks. Now, systems should include anything from your buying process to your renovation process to your refinancing process. Systematizing your real estate portfolio will actually turn it into a business and make it much more of an attractive portfolio when and if you want to sell. Remember, you want to own the real estate. You don't want the real estate to own you. So I wanted to make that joke, the whatever it is, car drives you thing, but I feel like it's an insensitive timing for that. <laughs> so I guess the next piece of that is you know, looking at your returns and accounting, because these are important systems, right? Do you want to involve your accountant, much like, you know, involving your contractor and trying to schedule your closings around their availability? Do you want to involve your accountant during the acquisition process? And the answer to this question is yes, by the way, it's a rhetorical question. You want to, (laughs) this is advice, you want to involve your accountant early in the acquisition process so they can advise you better on how to structure your deals for each asset to create tax advantages. I find the earlier you involve most professionals in the process, the better. It may have a bit of sunk cost up front. Maybe you have to pay them for a consult or whatever it is, but it could save costs on the tail end, especially with accounting. The last thing you want to do is show up to your accountant one day and say, I bought a property a year ago. Here's a box of receipts and bank statements showing how much income I made. Please fix. Thanks. So returns and accounting, think about your NOI, think about your cap rates, think about your internal rate of return appreciation and cash flow. Buy with intention and stick to the script that you would have wrote in your business plan or investment strategy. Don't deviate or rationalize. As soon as you're trying to rationalize something into place, that's because it doesn't fit there. Don't try and put a square peg into a round hole. Returns are obviously important. And from the minute you buy the asset throughout the hold and probably most important when you're selling it because that's how the buyer is going to value those assets. How do these properties actually perform? Where can you make the returns better? Is there any efficiencies that you can create? Speaking of that, that's a good segue into rent rolls and quality of tenants. So do you know your vacancies? Do you know your turnover rates? Do you know your delinquency rates? Do you know your tenant satisfaction rates? Do you know when rents were raised last? Is there an opportunity to bring rents up? And are there inefficiencies or anywhere you can make improvements? Now, there are different implications for each scenario. This will likely be a blend. It has been in a lot of the portfolios I've seen. Now, it varies depending on who your buyers and your sellers are, for instance, if they're institutional. 
But for us, regular good old investors, we have that one nightmare property, that one nightmare tenant that always seems to be causing a fuss or the, you know, something seems to be breaking. Maybe you're extra lucky and you have a few of those properties or a few of those tenants. But we've said this before, tenants are the real asset and you don't want to build a portfolio full of headaches. So you want to make sure that your systems are there for dealing with the not so great properties and the not so great tenants. Remember, it is a relationship business. Absolutely. Could not agree more with the importance on that one. Next on the list is corporate structure. And it kind of goes back to involving your accountant again. You're going to want to likely start a corp to hold the assets and know exactly how those assets are going to be held corporately. You could have each property held in its own corporation or under an umbrella corp with hold codes for each asset. Or all the properties can be held in one corporation. A lot of it's going to depend on how you're deducting expenses. And maybe even fundraising could be a consideration here. Do you plan on selling shares in your portfolio later? Or are you investing with a friend and it's easier to divide up the shares on the way in? If so, you you might want the investors to buy shares of the entire portfolio. Or do you want them to buy shares of an, a specific asset? You need to consider corporate structure there as well because those corps are the companies that you'd be selling shares in. So you can't really just sell shares in a piece of real estate. Well, you can, but it's more expensive. There are different tax considerations as well and potential advantages when a corporation sells or disposes of a property versus selling shares to move assets around. The idea here is to think about each corp and property like a business. Remember, go back to what Nick said about business plan, investment strategy. You have to have all of these things thought through. Don't just go out there and wild west it and start buying stuff. Think about it before you do it and think about your why and stick to it. Are you planning to sell each property off one at a time later? Are you planning to sell an entire portfolio or are you not planning to sell at all? And on that note, when you think about the business you're building, it encompasses all of those things that we talked about, the systems, the returns, the accounting, the people, the tenants, but also the places or the buildings. And you need to know your buildings. That is your product. Whether you're selling the properties to a larger investor or holding the properties forever and handing them down to your kids who will probably sell them immediately to a larger investor anyway. So let's be honest about that. But do you know any of the major maintenance issues that you'll be facing? Cap X, right? Like, is your furnace on its way out? Do you need a new air conditioner? What's the roof like? Do you know when you'll need cosmetic upgrades to the unit, right? A little paint makes it sparkle. Have you accounted for all of those costs in your models? I think the part about your kids selling you know, the asset out of inheritance is funny. Maybe they won't if you've done a lot of the things that we mentioned earlier. And you know, if you have good management in place, if you have good systems and you're actually handing them a passive income stream rather than a, you know, operating management intensive business. And management is the last item on the list, I think. You know, nope. there's man there's management. I yeah, I guess there's two things here. But so, <laughs> you know, and it is management of the asset and then it's management of the capital, right? So Property management is really the crux of it all. This is when you get to that passive part of real estate investing that you always hear about. This is the reason that you're getting to scale. You know, it's usually not economically sensible to hire somebody to pay somebody to manage one single asset, at least not at the returns that we're seeing in the Canadian market. In the States, you see it all the time, right? Most people, there's, there's a huge infrastructure built around Airbnb management as an example that there just isn't in Canada because we don't have the margin for it, to be honest. You know, this is when you get to turn the grueling task of scaling a portfolio. And I say that like, I want to be honest here. It's not easy. We're in the middle of building a big portfolio right now. It is 
very, very serious work for a lot of people. Very difficult. Like full-time job for several individuals. And you're turning it into a long-term hold position that can give you consistent cash flow, equity growth, and it helps you reach your financial goals. But in order to get there, you need to get to a scale where it's worth your while to hire a property manager, which is going to cost you around 10% of gross rent, plus or minus a few percentage points, depending on quality, negotiation, et cetera. Now, the final piece of the thing we're talking about is the management of capital, especially your debt. When you're getting into portfolios, you're getting into a capital management game, much like a hedge fund or a REIT, and you need to run the business as such. So some questions you need to be asking yourself, have you optimized your mortgages on each property? Are you getting the best interest rates? Do you have the right amortizations for your goals? For example, paying down less principal if your goal is cash flow, depending on the hold time. Do you have flexibility like open mortgages, variable rates where you need to, if you want to sell them and you don't have to take a penalty on those, can you afford rate hikes? That's a good question for right now. We don't or need to know that. In- <laughs> or increases on renewal. Do you know where all your mortgages are up for renewal? Can you get a blanket mortgage on your portfolio? All things to consider. Yeah. And the the blanket piece is the perfect segue to talk about actually buying a portfolio because this is where you really start to see that implication of scale. You know, when you're buying a portfolio, you usually have one single closing date and one blanket mortgage product across all of the properties. So you don't really get the luxury of having staggered closings or staggered mortgage renewals. You don't get the luxury of being in control of many of the variables, like we mentioned. Again, going back to that analogy that I used at the beginning, it's like buying a house versus building a house. You build it, yeah, it's going to be tough. It's a hard process. You can usually you know, protect some costs and you get everything that you want along the way for the most part. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the portfolios that we've recently looked at, Dan, some that we've actually bought and some that we've passed on. Now, the math involved in buying a portfolio is a hell of a lot different than the math involved in buying a duplex. And I mean seriously different. You are not running a performa on two units with minimal vacancy and two rents. You're running it on dozens. So we've looked at things to consider when you build your portfolio. Now, let's look at buying a portfolio. You're running numbers on potentially dozens of properties in different locations that may require different amounts of capital expenditure with experience different levels of vacancy and many other issues. Multiple buildings all need to be considered independently, but also how they all work together. And I think it's also important to think about a portfolio based on the things that we just mentioned before. Somebody else wouldn't exactly do everything the way that you would have. And so you have to control for a lot of these differences on the way in. Buying a portfolio is a different story. It's something that many of us want to do, but in theory, it can get complicated. For instance, when we just looked at an eight-door portfolio, which we now have under contract, we also spent over two months negotiating and running pro formas and doing our due diligence on another larger portfolio, a 25-door portfolio. Yeah, that was a tough one to walk away from, right? It was a really shiny object syndrome. You know, you hear 25 doors, you get all excited. You think, wow, we're really going to grow. We need the doors. But then your CPA team members come in and do what they do in Excel and it doesn't make sense. And buying a portfolio is a wonderful way to scale. But if the numbers don't make sense, then you're just buying a bunch of headaches. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're buying a portfolio, you need the portfolio in its entirety to make sense. If you're going to do the headache portion of it, build the portfolio yourself. I promise that's a sufficient headache. But you also need to drill down and look at each property on an individual basis. And that's harder to do when you're taking on a whole portfolio. Does it make sense as a whole? But also, do they make sense individually? 
Yeah. And a couple of other things. I mean, the portfolio will likely be a mix of assets. You'll have to look at the portfolio loan instead of individual mortgages. You'll need to work with a lender that has that product to support a portfolio loan. You know, the value in buying a portfolio is that it's a portfolio. The assembly and the headaches have been done by someone else. You know, those someone else's are you and I right now, Dan and our team but you're going to be paying a premium for it. So if and when we do go to sell our portfolio, we expect a premium, but that's okay because that's expected because someone else did all the work to assemble it. For sure. And a portfolio is a combined collection of an investor's assets, right? So that can include all of those different things. And I think it's interesting when you talk about the 25 versus the eight, the eight that we took under contract, the 25 that, I mean, look, when we went through those and the one building that we were talking about that was nightmarish on the renovation side was included in that, not an exceptionally well done portfolio. It was sitting tons of vacancy. I mean, this is a, what I would call probably a soon to be distressed deal. I really like it, but it needs to get to the point where you know the owner realizes that they're likely going to lose a lot of equity on that deal and be priced accordingly. And in a lot of cases, because you know there's pretty much nothing that didn't need to be done there, and so a lot of it's who you're buying from, right? And in that case. You know, buying from somebody who wasn't an experienced real estate investor, and you're basically starting from scratch. You're going to be fixing a lot of the problems that have been created along the way. And at that point, we looked at it and we said, look, if I'm going to go get 25 doors, I might as well just start from scratch. I might as well just do them two at a time, right? Two duplexes at a time, or, you know, a triplex at a time, because the amount of headaches with that portfolio is going to be equal to the amount that it would be to build a 25 door portfolio. So, I mean, I think we've pretty much covered everything I want to cover here, Nick. I don't know if there's anything you want to add in regards to the ones that we've looked at. Otherwise, we can just wrap up. I think maybe we just run through the last couple of points here as kind of a finisher and, and refresher. And then I think we're we're probably good to get out of here. Yeah, for sure. I know you've got to go to Barbie World later today, right? Yeah, so yeah, I don't want to, to keep you waiting. Of, world of Barbie. World of Barbie. Um, there we go. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. The last week of it. So people often use investment portfolios to grow or preserve wealth, right? Remember, diversification is key to keeping balance among the assets, whether for growth, for savings, for income, or for value. And you can manage your own portfolio or ideally, eventually, you pay someone to manage it on your behalf. And when building a portfolio, assess the factors that relate to you and your goals, such as time, horizon, and risk tolerance. And remember to, at the onset, plan accordingly. Have a plan and stick to it. Don't get shiny object syndrome because if it wasn't for the level-headedness of the CPA on our team or guys like Nick, I would have been chasing those shiny objects and I'd be in a bad financial position right now. So we had a plan that we all agreed on that was consensus and we stuck to it. And if you do that, don't deviate. You will be successful in, in the process of putting together a portfolio. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.